I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Peter Sterling, is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Although his research focused on the three-dimensional microanatomy of the retina, he has also developed an alternative conceptual understanding of physiological regulation and behavior with implications for the practice of medicine as well as social justice issues. Together with Joseph Iyer, he coined the term allostasis, meaning stability through change. Unlike the concept of physiological homeostasis, allostasis takes into account how the brain predicts and prepares the body in advance for situational demands and needs. He is the author of the recent book, What is Health? Allostasis and the Evolution of Human Design, published in 2020. So Peter, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Great to be here. So Peter, in, in the introduction to your book, you write, my professional life involved two passions. One was to understand the brain by investigating its detailed circuitry. The other was to participate in the broad pro-social movements of my time. So tell us a bit about the personal roots of these two distinct interests and how you came to combine them. Sure. The, uh, the social passion uh, came first. My parents, as it happens, were uh, members of the American Communist Party. They grew up in the 30s. Uh, they, were, they met on the Federal Writers Project during the Roosevelt's New Deal. And they, uh, like many others in that generation, were concerned with social justice, particularly racism. I mean, at that period, there was a tremendous, tremendous number of lynchings of black people. Black people could not find work anywhere uh, except as menial labor. And so they were involved in these, in these movements, and that's what I was born into. When I was in diapers, I was on the picket line in a stroller. And, and uh, my parents, most of their friends were similarly engaged. And so the children who grew up in these conditions were, were known as red diaper babies. And uh, for many of us, some of the children from this period rejected the, the responsibility of a uh, sense of responsibility for carrying on these movements, but others, uh, such as my sister and I, uh, my sister's four years younger, we were raised and we, we went to school with red diaper babies. We went to summer camps with them. Uh, we went to college with them. My roommates, at Cornell University in the uh, late 50s and early 60s were all red diaper babies. And so this became part of our life uh, commitment, really. The nature and science came from actually from my mother, who had grown up in New York City, but was always somehow uh, interested in nature. She, she, I think she wished she'd been a botanist or something. This was before the women's movement sort of encouraged women to go into science. But she encouraged both my sister and I uh, in, in biological investigations. And my sister became a, uh, a geneticist uh, studying fruit fly development and was uh, for many years at Brown University. Her name is Anne Fausto Sterling. She became active in, in women's uh, studies and issues of gender and so on, which are now you know, at the forefront. And we grew up in the in the suburbs, northern suburbs. It was still lots of insects and animals and snakes. And I had a little uh, sort of zoological museum in my room. And, and then uh, when I went to college, I, I majored in biology, uh, zoology, and you know, took all the requisite biochemistry and 
training for science. And, uh, but while I was doing this at Cornell, this was the, just the beginning of the civil rights period. So in 1960, for example, the Southern students in, in North Carolina started to sit in at lunch counters, demanding that they be served at lunch counters. And so some of my other red diaper compadres organized a, a picket line at, uh, in Ithaca, downtown Ithaca, which is a small town in New York State. We organized a picket line of Woolworths, which was at that time a five and 10 cent store. It's probably, it would be a dollar store today. And, um, and in support of the Southern students. And then I began, began to raise money for Martin Luther King's uh, organizations and um, such activities. And I would say my career at Cornell culminated in 1961 when I, I left just, just before exam time in, in, in late May for, uh, for Mississippi with several graduate students to, uh, to join the Freedom Rides, which again, current people may need some explanation, uh, young people, that this was a, a very carefully planned uh, campaign and effort to bring mostly students all, from all over the country in, in integrated groups, black and white men and women to Jackson, Mississippi, which is you know, the capital of, of Mississippi, to fill the jails until the federal government, which was John, John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, would make a ruling to, to outlaw segregation in interstate travel. And the, move, the movement started in May when there was a bus burning uh, in, in Alabama uh, and a beating of many of the uh, participants, one of whom was John Lewis, the late John Lewis, who was a, you know, one of my lifelong heroes. So it was the publication of this burning bus that got our attention and, um, and we decided to go. So we drove down to New Orleans and got some training by a group called a core Congress of Racial Equality. And then we went by train to Mississippi, to Jackson, where we were arrested. And so that was late May. And by November, essentially, the, uh, the Kennedy administration changed the, changed the rulings and just with a stroke of the pen, wiped out segregation in interstate travel. So it was a real political triumph for students, my gosh, you know, look at, look, look what we did with just a few nights in jail. It was really a great, it was a uh, very good lesson. Very heady and, and, and I'm sure that was a very formative experience for you. You already had a social conscience kind of implanted in you by your parents, but it, you really developed it also on your own. I, I think that we'll have a chance to kind of weave together those two strands, you know, the scientific interest and the social action interest as we continue in the interview. Um, but let, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your uh, kind of core concept of allostasis. So you, you write early in the book that physicians were quite comfortable with the venerable no-fault concept of homeostasis, whereby local error-correcting mechanisms are thought to impose constancy without the brain except for emergencies. All medical education centered on this idea, and it still does, but it turns out that most parameters are not constant, only a few are rigorously fixed. And although local error-correcting mechanisms belong to the overall equation, the brain is definitely in charge. 
So let, let's parse this out a bit without going into too much technical detail of biochemistry. Could you provide us with a few examples of physiological parameters, the, the rare fixed ones, and also the common variable ones? Sure. The standard idea is that all of these parameters are fixed. When, when you, people say, well, what is your blood pressure? And people say, well, my blood pressure is 130 over you know, 90 or, or 150 or something like that. But I, I gradually realized uh, when I was uh, working with this uh, young man who I, you know, we we're all young, jo Joseph Iyer, that your blood pressure is not fixed. It's going up and down minute by minute and depending on what's going on in your head and what you're, what you're seeing. And I have published uh, several records of this in my articles and books showing blood pressure fluctuating wildly from 50 over 30 when you're asleep up to 160 over 100, you know, when you're challenged in some way. And so when I discovered this, I was, I was amazed. And then I realized, well, what is changing your blood pressure and controlling it is your brain because the brain has controls nerves that go to every blood vessel and can constrict it to raise the pressure. It, it has nerves to your heart, which can increase the rate uh, and force of its contraction. It has nerves that go to the kidney and, the, and these nerves cause uh, the release of hormones by the kidney to increase the kidneys saving of salt because you need salt water in your veins to raise the pressure. And so it even controls your appetite for salt. And so when you're challenged over a long, you know, chronically to uh, have higher blood pressure, your brain causes you to eat more salt. You know, and that's part of the issue in, in modern society is that people eat a lot of salt to support this hypertension. I also learned that People who, who live originally as like hunter-gatherers and, and agriculturalists in small groups and who have a very rich social life and a lot of exercise and so on, they don't have hypertension. And so I, that was another part of my understanding is that how we live determines these parameters. So we'll, we'll get in a second, we'll come back to hypertension because that's really, I think, a great example. But what would be a few examples of things that are fixed? Would it be something like a basic blood supply to the brain? I mean, that can't be too variable, for instance. Um, yes, that is that is one. The, the kinds of things that are fixed are, are, are parameters that cannot be allowed, allowed to, um, to, to vary without damage. And, and your brain can only go for a couple of minutes without serious damage for lack of oxygen. So you have to maintain oxygen to the brain. Um, that's one. Therefore, there are many, many mechanisms to do this. And so, but another one I think is interesting at the, uh, at the cellular level is that the cells convert energy into doing chemistry and regulating all kinds of their activities using a single molecule called ATP adenosine triphosphate. And it's sort of like the, uh, the financial currency for all exchange in cells in, in the body. And so the heart muscles uh, need ATP to beat, 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 day in, day out, year in, year out. And if, if the ATP level drops 
very much from its maximum level, the, the chemical reactions don't work right. So it has to be maintained and there's no way to store it. We, the heart muscle uses it up uh, in great quantities and uh, the whole body does. And so there are a series of cellular mechanisms that just keep it topped up. It's like a, like a fuel tank. Uh, it's like driving your car where you never let, let the fuel drop below about 95% fall. And if, if you get a little bit too much, then it, it blinks off for a moment, but it comes back on. And so there's these very um, profound physiological mechanisms that maintain it that way. But most of the body, you're, you're temp you're, uh, another reason to vary things is because uh, every time you turn up some parameter, it costs energy. And that requires eventually that you have to go get more food and then you're more exposed as, as we were you know, animals before they were supermarkets, you're exposed to danger of various kinds. And so the body evolved very early to be highly efficient. The, the first bacteria had very efficient metabolism. And for example, if, if you study the chemical reactions that are needed to take glucose and break it down into energy producing compounds, there is a certain number of, uh, of reactions of steps that are taken. People have now studied and shown that the number of reactions that a bacterium uses is the minimum that can be done. Okay, so, so many of these processes have been perfected over, over millions of years of uh, evolution. So one of the ideas in your book, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about at length here, is that the brain, in understanding the situational demands of an upcoming situation, prepares the body before any kind of homeostatic mechanism takes place to try to keep it in a range. So like you mentioned hypertension, so the blood pressure, the breathing rate, the, the uh, pulse rate, all can go up if there's an expected demand first. There's the, and that's part of the efficiency you talk about. It's more efficient to anticipate demand than to react after the fact. Exactly, that's exactly right. And you mentioned that, that uh, indigenous societies often don't have uh, blood pressure issues or a whole host of metabolic diseases. Are you suggesting here that the reason they don't is because they don't have the kind of demands that modern life imposes? Yes, exactly. Uh, people here, I mean, I'm living in Panama now in a rural community. I mean, it's changing now. But when we arrived here, you know, uh, nearly 20 years ago, people would walk to work just as it's dawn is coming. They would walk six kilometers to get to work. And so they got, and they would walk six kilometers home. There was no decent road. There were no buses or taxi cabs. And then they would do physical labor of various kinds. They were farmers and they, uh, they raised their own food and their community, uh, there were no, there was no electricity. There were no cell phones. And so there were community activities. There were dances, you know, uh, there were cockfights, for example, uh, which uh, many of the men here take great interest in raising uh, roosters to, to do this. And, it, you know, it seems, I think in the modern world, you know, uh, a mean thing to do, but that's the culture here. And so uh, people took care of each other. And there was, there was never, and to this day, I have never seen 
a homeless person lying in the street. If somebody is incapacitated in some way and cannot make their living, somebody here will take them in and uh, somebody will feed them. And occasionally somebody will get drunk on a Saturday night and, and there'll be a fight, but there are no shootings, there are no drug addicts, uh, you don't see crack vials on the street the way I used to do in Philadelphia. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's an integrated community. And in that situation, people's blood pressures are low and they, uh, they are not fat. They don't have type 2 diabetes. Um, they have none of the metabolic problems or, or addictive problems that uh, modern society has. So it's been a very interesting experience. So when you're integrative understanding, you know, that a combined science and social action, you also, I think, have become, in a way, a sociologist and an anthropologist. I think it sounds to me like you've realized that the way of life where you are where you are in Panama, the, the social solidarity and social support is so much greater. And also life is probably somewhat less unpredictable. If the life is fairly routine, and doesn't have a million demands, then the blood pressure doesn't have to respond. Or is the, the, the times when blood pressure and all the other parameters are elevated would be fairly uncommon. So that rather than a kind of chronic diffuse demand that modern life seems to give, I mean, you wouldn't have as many anxious people, for instance. That's right. I mean, I don't want to over romanticize. I mean, people do get anxious here. Some people, you know, uh, you know, everybody has problems. That's something that comes with this very large brain and a very social brain because, I mean, even in a small community, although people won't let you be homeless, there are conflicts that grow up in the community and people are get, you know, pissed off and, and, and so on. But I think the important point is what struck me when I first looked at these recordings of blood pressure, 24-hour recordings, um, measurements, what you could see is the pressure went up and then it went down. When, when somebody dozed in a lecture, their pressure fell. When they uh, were, were jabbed with the pin as a joke, their pressure went up. When they were anticipating uh, sex at night, their pressure went way high up. After sex and this, during sleep, it went down. And so there were, it became clear that this, this is the... The, the default behavior is to, to raise uh, metabolism and, and cardiovascular response in anticipation um, of something that's going to happen. And then when it resolves, it's like a, like a, a piece of music. Uh, you, you have this, this crescendo and then things resolve and, and settle, settle down. Who would want to listen to a piece that was all crescendo and, and just stayed yes, up there? Exactly. <laughs> it wouldn't be very pleasant exactly. to listen to. You also write that um, lacking clarity about what is needed for an integrated life, medicine focuses on final mechanisms, ship on the rocks that seem to offer simple possibilities for repair. The basic science can be compelling because it effectively clarifies small questions that lead to other small questions that can lead ultimately to a pill. But the space between us is so complex that without some model, each brilliant advance may draw us further off course. So, and I got the impression that you think that we're far, of course, that we really missed the forest for the trees and that we're so enamored of these uh, kind of this, this simple 
explanations that lead to simple but you know impressive uh, effects, but it doesn't really address the the underlying issue. So you, you can correct blood pressure with a pill, but then the if the brain still wants the blood pressure to go up, it's tr it tries to compensate in other ways. I always thought that um, that was a success story of Western medicine that hypertension, especially chronic hypertension, was you know was such a big killer, and that's one of the reasons why more people are living a full lifespan. But it sounds like you take issue with that idea. Yeah, where to start? There's so many points here. First of all, it is a success story in the narrow sense that if I give you a drug, which is called a beta blocker, there's many versions of it, it, it will reduce your heart rate and the strength of contraction of your heart. And so that will reduce your blood pressure. So that is a first line thing. On the other hand, uh, I, I walk with a, a lot of old men now who are taking this drug and they can't walk up a hill because they can't increase their blood pressure uh, upon demand. So that's one problem. The other problem is that each of these drugs affects many, many different points in, in the body. So if you're taking a beta blocker to, to control your heart rhythm and blood pressure, it also causes, uh, in complex ways, it raises your blood glucose. So uh, if you're a little overweight and you have uh, problems with your blood glucose, it's, it raises your blood pressure, but it increases your chances of type 2 diabetes. And this is true for every drug. They have multiple effects, and some of them are positive and some of them are not. So the other thing is that once you start taking, as you said, uh, a drug to reduce your heart rate, uh, the brain says, no, we need to, you know, we need to raise the pressure. And so it constricts the blood vessels. So there's another drug that can block the blood vessels. And there's another dr drug that can block the kidney, the nerves to the kidney. And so before long, the individual is taking multiple drugs. I call this polypharmacy. And eventually the, the physician can get control of the pressure but it was designed to vary. And so, so people are not, they, they have iatrogenic physician-caused disease like, like type 2 diabetes, and they've, they have reduced the responsiveness of their body to the demand. Now, people say, well, but this is a great success in treating hypertension. But the fact is that in the U.S., uh, leading causes of death are still hypertension and cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. These are the leading causes of death. So after 60 years of, of more and more and more drugs, we haven't solved that problem really. And, and what we're doing is spending more and more of our gross domestic product on, on this sort of treatment, polypharmacy, so we, we spend now 20% of our gross domestic product on healthcare, but the U.S. is 34th in life expectancy. And there are many countries that are much poorer, but where people walk and um, who have a better life expectancy. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at is that cardiovascular disease is not a disease in the sense of there being a defect in the brain or in or in the cardiovascular system either that really the disease ultimately is a social disease 
and that there are, our social conditions are creating the um, perceived need in each of our brains to, well, not each of our brains, but the ones that are prone to it, to uh, increase our blood pressure beyond the, um, I mean, the average blood pressure beyond the parameters that we're designed to have. So yes, so our, our blood pressure is still varying, but it's varying at a higher level. It's, it's uh, for people who are prone to this, it's, the, it's chronically elevated uh, instead of being in, the, in a uh, healthier range. There's another point that I, I make in the book is that this starts early. Our blood pressure under natural conditions, pre-industrial conditions, would be about 100 over 60. And that's what children have. But when they leave their family nest and they go to school around age six or seven, that's when the average blood pressure starts to rise. And it continues to rise all through school so that by graduation from high school around age 18, nearly a quarter of men and women, young men and women, have pressures chronically in the, in the hypertensive range. And that continues to rise. So in, in a sense, we've you know, created this situation, but intervening at the, at the social level is so much more complicated politically than just having doctors and the medical industrial complex come up with these kind of short-term fixes that don't really fix it. It's inconvenient. And I must say, uh, the longer I go on, I think the more aware I get and disheartened is that this is driven a lot by uh, big pharma who has just taken most of the most of the money for healthcare now. For example, obesity is a major problem. That's not no not news to anybody. Uh, Seventy percent of US adults are obese. There's 15 million children who are obese. And we're not even talking just about overweight. We're talking about, you know, major obesity. And now, after a lot of research, some big drug companies, Novo Nordisk, for example, has come up with a chemical that uh, mimics a brain hormone. And this brain hormone uh, acts on certain very important neural centers that control your appetite. So now you can inject a person once every two weeks with this brain hormone and they will lose weight and their, their blood glucose will go improve. And it seems like a marvelous uh, solution. And, and I, there was an article in the paper two days ago where they're going to they're prepare to treat 15 million young people with this. And it seems a miracle of modern medicine. Well, there's two problems. One is that people have only looked, this sort of medicine only looks at the six week trial, the one year trial, and they don't look ahead to see, well, if you change people's desire to eat, that's what this drug is doing in the brain, it's reducing your desire to eat. The people who are eating because the food is making them happy or less anxious, people who use food as a way to calm themselves are going to lose their desire to eat, but will they also lose their desire to live? Uh, this is something that has not been investigated, and I, I suspect that this will be a, a problem. If you take away people's basic coping mechanism, they're, gonna, they're very likely to become depressed and suicidal. So that's one problem. The other problem is that Novo Nordisk uh, is charging uh, $1,300 a month for this treatment. If you multiply that by the 70 million 
uh, adults and 15 million children who will need to take this for life. Uh, it becomes an annual bill of over a trillion dollars. And that's 20% of the US uh, budget uh, for, for health. So uh, it's a great thing for the drug companies, but it's going to, it's going to completely break uh, all international medical uh, costs, you know. Yeah, I, I, would, I would imagine that the, the prices will come down quite a bit if, before it gets there. But nevertheless, you're right. I mean, it's going to add a huge burden financially to do that. And I, I think you're also alluding to the, uh, the, I guess you could call it a, a fact or truism, whatever, that, that very few things in the body are totally targeted for only one thing. We're much more complicated than including our genes. Each gene is not doing just one thing. I mean, it's it's in combination with other genes, and it's incredibly complicated. And that's why it's taking so long to make any progress or make much progress after the genome was sequenced. I think there was this a lot of overconfidence that oh, we're going to be curing all sorts of diseases, but the more common diseases like hypertension are multifactorial. To right. Mass. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a scientist. I made my living. Um, studying the chemistry of, of how we see and, and the neural chemistry of how we see. I, and I, you know, I'm not, a, uh, uh, I'm not against technological progress, but I think we need to be honest about what, what really does constitute progress and what is just going to make life worse for everybody. And it seems that your goal here in trying to kind of persuade people to take a different view or a kind of a more systemic view leads to things like sociology and anthropology and ethics and philosophy, you know, as, as kind of the, the answer. And, and that doesn't sound as much like hard science. And so, you know, I think as a culture, we really value the, the things that are absolutely demonstrable empirically. And if we're talking about things like values and social organization, then it's much fuzzier. And I think that it seems to me that there's a tremendous prejudice the other way, and that, that's, that's only growing stronger year by year. So I'm, I'm just curious, you taught for many decades in, in uh, at UPenn and Ivy League Medical School, kind of swimming against the current, intellectually speaking. You know, what was it like to challenge both your students and your colleagues with these ideas? I mean, it, it seems like I would think a common response would be, "Oh yeah, we knew that already. Yeah, the, let's go, let's move on." Well, that that really wasn't the, the thing because they didn't know it and they didn't even believe it. <laughs> okay, I was chair of the course for the first year medical students in neuroscience in the early 70s when I was just discovering these things. And so when the part of the course came that dealt with the emotional part of the brain, it was called the limbic system then, I, I gave three lectures on, on the emotional parts of the brain, the structure, the function, and I tried to connect it to these uh, lives of uh, simpler societies and I played I played music in the class that had a, a large emotional content. I thought, well, you know, we're going to talk about emotion. Let's feel it, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I I was particularly taken with the music of a woman named Dori Previn. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but they're amazing. She was um, she had been the uh, the wife of uh, Andre Previn. So, uh, and she had periods of real madness, and she. Uh, she had a song called Mr. Whispers. Mr. Whispers is a voice in her head. And I played the song and it's like, I would, I would stop, the song would stop 
and I would look at the audience and I would be speechless. I, I just couldn't, uh, I was overwhelmed with this power of this thing. And everybody's looking at me like, you know, basically, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and um, so I did this for several years. And then fi finally, um, the faculty said, look, wh why, why are you playing these folk songs? What is this about, really? You know? And there was, of the seven other faculty, was one older man who understood at some intuitive level why I was doing it. And, but the rest of them didn't want me to do it. And so I stopped. But I still get students who come from 30, 40 years later saying, I remember those songs, they were so meaningful. About my experiences with about a third of the class, very smart kids, they would get it. They would understand what I was trying to get at and they would accept it, as I explained in the book a little bit. And then there's about a third of the class that are completely indifferent. They wanna know what's on the exam and they really are not engaged and then there's a third of the class, roughly, who did hear the intensity uh, of the emotion, and they and they heard my essentially demand on them to to engage emotionally with the people in these in these problems, and they didn't like it, and they would walk out. Uh, it just was too disturbing to them. So the faculty, the ideas that I was trying to express a, a, about allostasis. The faculty did get, I mean, they were scientists and they understood the point, you know, but they were never interested enough to really develop it and teach it in their, in their lab sections or anything like that. They'd say, oh yes, Peter's, you know, very interesting, but then they would, they would go on. Except for one uh, senior faculty member who was a uh, experimental psychologist, a neuroscientist, he invited me to uh, to give a talk at some meeting of his, and and uh, his name was Elliot Steller, and he had a colleague, an important colleague named Bruce McEwen, who was at the Rockefeller uni uh, University, and they they got the idea about stability through change and the and the the value of understanding physiology is as responsiveness. And McEwen, so they published an article, sort of taking off from my. Uh, first uh, work with Joe Iyer, and and they publicized it uh, a, a lot for several decades. So so it was a, I, w I was definitely an outsider. Yeah, because you know the, the the medical intervention that flow from your ideas are things like uh, national health care and uh, maternity leave. You know things like that. You know it's that they're not they're not specifically medical. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of the, the core of your book and many of the chapters, I think probably more th than not, are a grand tour of evolution that you met. You, it's really impressive, just not only the, the breadth of the tour, but the depth of the, uh, the information that you present and the numbers. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way of a kind of almost making a kind of legal case <laughs> for, your, for your ideas. It's very convincing. And you, you do it for in a step-by-step -step, uh, biomolecular and bioenergetic way of, of, of presenting the origin from the first primitive cells all the way to Homo sapiens. So how, in your view, does, does all that kind of add up to your, or lead to your, your case for the allostatic model? Yeah, good. Yeah, that's a nice question. Well, I would say I began what, you know, why... I, I began my understanding and investigation of these 
issues uh, from the top down, from my politics. Uh, when I went into the, uh, the black ghettos in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was wor working on a PhD, that's where I first saw the consequences of hypertension. I knock on a door in, in the central part of Cleveland, which is all black, um, and still is, and uh, somebody would come to the door who was paralyzed and, and could hardly speak. His face would be sagging, his speech would be slurred. And I'd never seen this in, in the white suburbs where I grew up. And uh, so I went back to the lab and my, my supervisor was a neuroanatomist and a, and a neurologist. He said, yeah, that's, that's hypertension. And at that time, people thought, well, black people have hypertension because they're bad genes. And that's when I began to wonder, and I discovered, no, it was because they live corralled in this uh, high level of social tension. My last year, when I completed my uh, doctoral thesis, uh, Cleveland blew up. It was in 19, summer of 1966, and uh, there were riots all over, uh, all, you know, in that period. So I, I began to study from the top down, how does the brain cause these problems? But when I came to write the book, <laughs> 60 years later, I wanted to see if I could build up the, my understanding of the way the body works from the bottom up, from molecules up all the way to the, to the brain. And I had written a book earlier with a man named Simon Laughlin, who was a very good neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge in England. And we wrote a book called uh, Principles of Neural Design. And it was based on the idea that the brain, human brain, is smarter than a supercomputer. And despite all the stuff in the last few weeks about chat box, the current computers still cannot drive a car. They still cannot do simultaneous translation. And they're still not that smart, okay? And they require a nuclear power plant to run. The, the power for, for driving these Huge computers is, is vast, whereas the human brain fits into like a milk container and, uh, and runs, runs on 20 watts. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that in your presentation of the uh, evolutionary biology, you're, you're in a sense making a case that everything's working the way it's supposed to because it's been designed, not necessarily by a designer, but evolution has honed the design from the most basic energy consumption, energy needs of, of the single cells all the way up, and that the brain of most of us, unless there's a genetic defect, is working just the way it's supposed to. And if it's got hypertension, if it's got anxiety, it's, it's because of the conditions. It's not because there's something wrong with that person per se. That's exactly right. And so what I tried to do in these chapters is to show at each level of organization how perfect essentially perfected they are optimized yeah they are yeah optimized you use the word penglossian you know the, the best of all possible <laughs> of constructions so i was accused i am accused of being penglossian uh, and sort of ridicule there are some biologists who very famous biologists who say no this is nonsense we're we're just a conglomerate of accidents and anybody who says this is perfected is uh is being silly but i take pains to show that at each level, for example, the production of ATP, there's an amazing tiny molecular machine in our cells 
that synthesizes ATP. And it does so with a 90% efficiency. It, the amount of energy it takes to produce it, we get back 90% of it as ATP. And so that's about as good as any kind of machine could be. Human-built machines are you know, 20% efficient or something like that. So, so I try to show that at the cell level, at the organ level, at the system level, things are working just about as well as you can calculate that they should. By way of analogy, or maybe by way of example, back when I was doing clinical psychology, if someone came to me with panic disorder, I would try to you know, persuade them that with the exception of the false alarm that there's a terrible emergency, their body is working just the way it's supposed to. So that they can have maybe some confidence that the, the elevated heart rate and anxiety and the lightheadedness and the sweaty palms and you know, all of that is, is actually absolutely the way the body's supposed to work when there's an emergency. And if there's no emergency outside the body, there's no tiger about to get you, then there's a very natural assumption though there must be something wrong inside. And that you know, creates the kind of the vicious cycle of panic disorder. Exactly. So um, I've, I read recently a comment on this, that when you go to a psychologist, therapist, uh, these days people will say, well, what's wrong with you? And what they should be saying is, what happened to you? I think that's it's turning out in these very large-scale studies of genome-wide studies of, of uh, psychological problems, it's turning out that the genes, collection of genes, doesn't predict anything about these psychological problems. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. But what's very predictive is how much trauma you had as a child and how much abuse you had. And those, you know, that very often leads to what I call mental disturbance. Or you might ask, what are you facing? What are you struggling? What are you grappling with? Yep. You also talk in your book about dopamine. And I think probably most of our listeners are familiar with the dopamine as the mediator for pleasure, the uh, kind of pleasure um, neurotransmitter. You blame the deterioration of reliable dopamine release, as you might have in an, in an indigenous or less industrialized society as the cause of uh, widespread unhappiness and addiction, social isolation. It's, it's an interesting link that you make there, you know, that it's kind of um, almost like a direct link, actually, that, uh, again, you're combining your social action values with your scientific understanding, which, and I have to say, that's a very unusual thing to do, and I, I commend it uh, tremendously, you know, to do that, because I think there's a common assumption that, well, science is sort of value-free and it's not. I mean, it's so interwoven with, with values. It's, it's hard to get from science to values, but nevertheless, they're, they're very integrated. Is there a question? Yeah. <laughs> I guess the question is, how do you draw that line, you know, about the, the dopamine, uh, the need for dopamine release? And uh, you seem to be uh, suggesting that modern society doesn't afford reliable enough dopamine release, as you might get in a... In a um, less industrialized society with multi-generational families and uh, social solidarity and feeling of belonging. I mean, th there would be little moments of pleasure all the time. Whereas in modern society, it seems that people are using video games if they're young or middle-aged males or um, kind of diffuse social interactions by, ch by uh, texting and Facebook and things like that. 
that it seems to me that you're saying that it's not as good somehow, or not as maybe good is the wrong word, but not as healthy as the as the older uh, kind of form of social organization. Uh, you're putting all of this very well and very clearly. So allow me though to start out with the, the issue of dopamine is often described as the pleasure chemical, and the focus is on the pleasure. But actually, uh, the scientific, I mean, the, the neurobiological role of this, uh, this neurotransmitter is not for pleasure, per se. It's part of our, our circuit for um, learning and for finding the things that we need. So the first organism that, had, that used dopamine in, in circuits was a worm which was a bilateral worm that was lived in the sea. And that's where it was one of our ancestors 0.6 billion years ago. So the idea of this circuit and descendants of this worm still around, and we can study the, these uh, circuits in these worms. And what, what we learn is that multicellular organisms, which once they became bilateral, produced insects and and crustaceans, and they produced vertebrates like fish and amphibians and reptiles and then mammals. So th there is a circuit that drives us, all of these organisms, to seek. We need to find food. We need to find mace. We need to find uh, the right temperature, the right level of acidity if we're living in the, in the sea. And so there's a circuit in your brain that says, move, go, find, until you find something that's good. And when you find something that's good, this circuit, and what you weren't expecting, you were just searching, this circuit releases a little drop of dopamine and, and the organism can stop and then feed, mate, whatever. It's a way to, to know when you found something important. Now, in higher animals, there's a psychological component to this circuit, which we experience as pleasure or relief. And actually, Freud actually has in his, his last book on civilization and his discontents, he says, the idea of happiness in humans is it's, it's an episodic thing. Mostly, we're, we're suffering and we're wandering and we're looking and finally, occasionally, we find something that makes us briefly happy. But then it goes away. And, and of course, it must go away because if we were if we got our dopamine and it stuck around for a long time, we, we wouldn't remember to make dinner. We wouldn't remember to go to bed. Or we, we, wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't do all the things that we need to do to keep going. So, so this chemical is a, meant as a brief reward for something unexpected that's better than you thought. So if you're imagining that you're going to get it and you know that you're going to get some reward, it's not as satisfying. It doesn't release as much dopamine. And you can show this by recording from dopamine neurons. To a positive surprise, they, they go wild. To a, an expected surprise, they don't do very much. Yeah, so it, it both motivates behavior, but also cements the neural connections when we, each time this happens. Yes, and it's learning. So when we, we, when we get dopamine, we remember that our synapses in our brain strengthen the connections. Remember, this is where you found food. This is where you found warmth. This is where you found a mate. And so uh, the mathematics underlying the release of dopamine for learning 
have been shown by computer scientists to be the optimal reward mechanism. And so we learned this from worms. Yeah. So how does it fit in? So you have these, you know, kind of, kind of tiny bursts of dopamine helping to make these uh, synaptic connections. What about things that are severely painful or frightening? You say that relief is kind of the same thing as pleasure, but not necessarily if it's something that's over the top dangerous. You know, then then it's a really powerful connection that's made right away. And I'm just wondering if modern life has more anxiety motivators than pleasure motiva- motivators. That the balance has shifted. Uh, that's a good question. I uh, I haven't studied that or read about it very much. Uh, it's sort of a gap, I think, uh, in my education, and so I really can't. I can't answer it, but I, but I would, I think I will. I think I'll go back and read about it. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, but the point is about simpler society is, is we, we were uncomfortable for a lot of the time. We, we would be wet. We would be cold. We would be hungry. I mean, you didn't get a, you couldn't go to the supermarket, you know, and, or flip the switch on your heating system. And so, uh, you know, if you were out there during the day and at the end of the day you found a, a rabbit, you know, um, that was, you got a shot of dopamine. If, if you found a cave and it was dry, a shot of dopamine. If you found a, you know, could make a fire, great. Yeah, and I, and I would think that uh, that's true even if it's not surprisingly better. Like, it, like if, I, if I make a recipe for something, like I, I make my own bagels, for instance, and I've pretty much perfected the recipe, so I don't need an extra shot of dopamine for making it even better. I mean, what I have is really successful. So I get a little shot of dopamine when I present the bagels to a new person you know, who hasn't tried them before. Right. But it's kind of expect, it's expected, but it's a reliable little, little pleasure for me. Sure. Well, I would say you hope for it. Yeah. You know, we go out hunting. We hope for a rabbit. We hope for some praise. We hope somebody will respond to our tweet. But when we get it, it's not so reliable. You, when you get it, it's you get a little. You have surprises, and then you have reliable surprises. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. But uh, one of the guys who studies this, very famous guy, uh, Wolfram Schultz, says, "No, I I get dopamine from the supermarket, you know." From and I said, you know, I said to him, "Look, you know exactly where you're going to find the the good olive oil on uh, aisle seven. And there'd be 20 kinds, and they're all pretty good. And, you know, if you relied for your life on that dopamine that you get from the supermarket, you know, you'd be in trouble. So I'm wondering with the last few minutes, if we could just touch on this. I know this is a big topic. We could probably could spend you know, a whole hour on it. Let's see. You wrote an article recently challenging the standard biological model of depression. I think it really dovetails very well with what we've been talking about, that there's an assumption by modern psychiatry that there are defects that lead people to be depressed or at least to be vulnerable to depression or schizophrenia or bipolar or any what have you and you lay out some in in your classic fashion just a tremendous amount of, of evidence with numbers and you know backing it up with research that wait a second these defects have not been found there's no evidence for them at least not as as yet and even the uh, genetic supposedly genetic discoveries are described just a tiny amount of variants, each one, and often they're not replicated. But even if they were replicated, it's really hard to argue that it's specifically a defect. I and mean, it could be that people who have a little bit more tendencies for empathy are more prone to depression. Are right? so you going to take away that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so 
I just would, I guess, suggest uh, for our listeners that if they're interested, they could look you up, Peter Sterling, challenging the standard model of depression. It'll come up if, if you Google it. It's a really interesting uh, point. And I, I think it's it very much dovetails with everything else we've been talking about uh, today. Yeah. So there's a, a YouTube that's just up um, of a half an hour talk I gave about this, where I present a, a PowerPoint slides of the genetic evidence and the uh, you know, the imaging evidence, Pe people were claiming, oh yeah, we can see a depressed brain. Well, you can't, you know. And I gave this talk in 30 minutes, and then there were, this is at um, Berkeley, University of California, uh, Grand Rounds, Psychiatry Grand Rounds. And then there was an hour discussion uh, of this. People were quite interested. And at the end of 64 attendees, 62 were still there. And I think people Therapists are, are interested in, in this material. And so if you Google YouTube depression, Peter Sterling, you'll, you'll find this talk, which is probably a, a useful way to, uh, to, uh, to get the story. Yeah, and I think once again, you're kind of going against the grain of uh, received wisdom, so to speak. And it's, it's really hard to do. And you know, I could say as a psychologist, you know, that not everyone is that amenable to, to therapy for whatever reasons. You know, so the people that are, I think they benefit, I think, far more than, than drugs. Uh, but there are a lot of people that are just either not interested or not psychologically minded enough or just have been persuaded about uh, that drugs are the answer. And they're going to be always wanting that solution and, and so, unless things really change in uh, societal assumptions. Sure. The, the problem is that the evidence on the drugs is that except for about 15 percent of people, the, the response to the drugs, which people may feel better, but the, the, uh, it's a placebo effect, basically. And that's what the current evidence shows. And of course, you can say, well, that's great. They get the placebo, but they get the downside of the drugs as well. Yeah, it's not an innocuous placebo, yeah. No, it is not. It's, it's, it's a problem, yeah. Well, so you, you close the book uh, with this paragraph. Uh, we need to change now even more fundamentally in our use of resources, goals for childhood education, and development of meaningful activities amidst material abundance. And we need to do it faster or faster than the change in civil rights. Otherwise, I fear Homo sapiens may fold into the fossil record along with the many species it has already extinguished. So, uh, and then you say perhaps books such as, uh, I, I say, you know, books such as yours maybe can help head off this worst case scenario. It, it's, it's a bit of a downer <laughs> ending, I have to say, but, but it really points to just the importance of, the, of what you're doing and, and trying to change people's thinking. Of course, it's going to take a lot of such books and YouTube videos and so on to do that, but it, it seems like it's, it's a really dire need. Um, it's hard to see in advance how that change is going to happen, but it, it's really necessary. I agree. This is my this is my hope. On the other hand, as a biologist, when I look at the uh, the fossil record, <laughs> there's layers and layers of species that are no longer with us, you know. And uh, so we, I think, we need to take it very seriously. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Peter Sterling, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and author of the book "What Is Health: Allostasis and the Evolution of Human Design." So, thank you for coming on to delving in. My, my pleasure. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, it, was, it was fun. Take care. You too. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, 
and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.